if you think about it, like everyone at that school, like we're all like forced to tell on each other and, and shame each other and things like that. It was just like part of like, you were in trouble if you didn't do it. And then she leaves to the outside world and that's what the paparazzi do to her. So it's like almost like the program followed her out, out in some ways. Hello and welcome to Girls With Goals. My name is Meve Marr. I was off. I was off last week. I was celebrating my birthday, so we didn't have an episode. But thank you, as always, for coming back and listening. So this week, we're talking about the Paris Hilton documentary, This Is Paris. So it was released a couple of weeks ago now at this stage on Paris Hilton's YouTube account. So far, it's been viewed over 10 million times and it's free to watch. So if you haven't, you should go and watch it. The description says, we thought we knew Paris Hilton We were wrong. This is the untold true story that shaped the woman and the iconic character she created. So it's a mad watch, lads. Honestly, I I was really taken by the documentary and I really wanted to learn more. Um, It deals with the reform schools that Paris was in. She was in a a few of them when she was younger, something that nobody knew about. Catherine McNamara features in the documentary. She spent time with Paris in one of the schools and she's also a part of a network of survivors called Breaking Code Silence. So I reached out to Catherine in the States and she graciously gave us some of her time. So I caught up with her earlier in the week. Take a listen. I'm Catherine McNamara and I guess you could say I'm a troubled teen industry advocate. activist because I, I did spend like two and a half years in uh, different programs when I was a teenager. I, I think that's kind of a great place to, to start off. So, I mean, obviously I got in touch with you because of the This Is Paris documentary um, that came out and that has obviously put a huge amount of spotlight on the troubled teen industry in America. It's something that I personally didn't know about. I knew I'd heard some things about it, but I really didn't know a huge amount about the magnitude of the industry. So I suppose for our Irish audience, would you be able to give us a little bit of insight into what exactly the troubled teen industry is firstly? Okay. Um, that That's Great question. And the thing with the troubled teen industry uh, in the U.S., which is a very weird thing to explain the history, but it actually originally spawned out of a cult in the U.S. Uh, called Synanon. So back in the 60s, there was a, uh, uh, well, it originally started out as an alternative to Alcoholics Anonymous and then turned into a, a cult. The cult ended up getting disbanded because a lot of illegal stuff happened. But some of the different member, high-level members of that cult basically went and started their own programs like to so they were alternatives to deal with troubled teens. The problem with trouble, the, teen, the term troubled teens is it can mean anything. There's no due process or like, like you know, t- any like conviction you get to be a troubled teen. It basically is your parents are like, feel you're talking back too much. Uh, you know, you're dealing with depression. You're dealing with your sexuality, trying to figure out if you're gay or straight. Like anybody can be sent to a program and labeled a troubled teen. So these programs started popping up and they're very cult-like. They came from that cult originally. And then it spawned a whole industry because there's a lot of people willing to pay money for it. So, so you know, the first ones that were popping up that were cult-based, like Straight Incorporated, um, uh, CDU, things like that. And CDU is one of the ones that Paris mentioned in her documentary that she went to for a short period of time. So uh, if you look at like, uh, you know, it's interesting, the survivors of these, these uh, uh, programs will, all, will watch like, you know, cult uh, like documentaries and be like, oh, my God, I feel like I was in that. 
because there's so much similarity between the two. There's a lot of ritual. There's a lot of like uh, a lot of like rewriting your beliefs to try to kind of get you in line. It feels a lot like brainwashing, like the techniques you see in cults. And that's because of that history. Um, it spawned into a billion, uh, multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. And so it, it's, um, it's interesting because a lot of the methods used are not very, are not evidence-based. There's no like little to no oversight. Uh, I know friends, uh, like I have a lot of friends in Europe, uh, in Asia, and they can't believe that like we, like they, they hear about these industries and they're just shocked that it's so big in the U.S., um, if you look at some of the marketing, it's pretty much like um, very ambiguous. Is your child giving you anxiety? Is your child not communicating with you? Like these blanket questions that are just like, yeah, every teenager is like that. But, you know, it, it, they, they quickly pivot in their marketing or in like their, their pitch to, well, they might be in danger of doing drugs, of, of having sex, of getting pregnant, of going to jail. If you don't turn them around now, you know, and we have this wonderful program to send them to, um, they could be, you know, and it preys on the, the, those parents' worst fears. They could be dead, insane, or in jail. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 it, it's a crazy industry that, uh, you know, leaves a lot of, unfortunately, damaged, like, you know, adults and traumatized kids that turn into adults that takes us a lot of us years and years to reconcile what happened to us in the end. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point because, well, what I found from watching the documentary was that it seemed like there was issues um, throughout the beginning of the documentary with, with what was happening with Paris kind of deciding to open up and talk about what had happened to her throughout a number of these reform schools. And then, you know, when I saw you on the documentary and, and the group of survivors that you were with as well, is that common that it takes years for some of what happened in terms of trauma to actually be recognized? Because like you said, you know, the kind of references to a cult, it didn't seem like, you know, you guys got out at 18 and then you were like, I was very seriously abused in this center and something needs to be done about it. Is it a case that it's taking a, a long time for people to come to terms with what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I run a, survivor, a Facebook survivors group and I, we have thousands of members and I'd say the average is any, like the, the shorter average uh, is like five years to 15 years for people to, I call it waking up there where they realize, Oh my God, this affected me so much. And then they start to like rethink like, would I ever do that to my kid? Oh my God, that's actually would be abuse. I would be arrested for that if I, yeah. And it's it, the, the waking up perspective, like action, it's, it's can be devastating for people, but when they start to realize it, you know, they want to take action. They realize like they want to speak about it. Like they try to talk to their parents and parents are often in denial. Like Paris's mom, like how the way she handled it at the end of the documentary was actually the best case scenario. Like most of the time parents are really in denial. They don't want to, typically see them like know that or accept that they may have sent their child away to a stranger or a bunch of strangers to get abused. Um, and um, the unfortunate part is the fact that it takes like the, the nature of trauma. I mean, like look at the other things that have happened in the past where like the Me Too movement where people come out years later about, you know, abuses that happened to them, the Catholic church, things like that. It, it typically like when you, that's the nature of trauma. When you have trauma, it's not easy to speak about it right after it happens or recognize it. It takes some time. The unfortunate part is the way that the laws are worked in these states that have a lot of these programs. If you don't press, like go and uh, file a lawsuit within two years, you're done. Like you, you have no legal rec reconciliation. And that's why Paris, like when people at, uh, asked us in an interview, um, 
do you want to seek any like like lawsuits or anything? We have no power to. It's been, you know, the, the second where uh, the two year mark goes by after we walk out of that place, we have no power to file a lawsuit. And if a lot of these kids get out and they're still underage. So unless it's their parent deciding to do the lawsuit, which a lot of parents are still in denial, they, they lose any legal re- uh, legal recourse by the time they're 18. I mean, I want to ask, and of course, I only want you to kind of, you know, speak about what you're comfortable with. But I mean, from your own experience, Catherine, can you tell us a bit about how you came to be at that school um, during the time that the Paris was there? And, you know, we saw a lot of Paris's uh, journey and kind of how she has dealt with this throughout uh, her life and her career, because, you know, it's been in the public eye for so many years. But for you personally, um, how was your experience? And it was Provo School, wasn't it? Yeah. So I actually went to two different programs and I went to Provo twice. So that that, that was fun. Um, uh, Being uh, facetious. Um, So I went to Provo Canyon School the first time when I was 14 years old. And I... um, I had never done drugs. I'd never kissed anybody. I had never had sex. None, nothing. I like. Um, I would say that, and my parents would probably agree with me that it was an overreaction on their part. Um, so my, when I was young, my sister, my younger sister, had cancer. Uh, she was yeah, she was sick for five years. My parents were just out of the house a lot, and um, during that time, I kind of was raising myself, and I was like a, from like the age of five to ten. My parents, after my sister passed away, went into a deep depression. Um, I was kind of still left alone. And I think I was like, you know, for the most part, I was little, I was defiant. um, And I was struggling with myself because I was starting to turn into a teenager and trying to figure out my own sexuality. And, you know, like, I won't say anything bad about my parents and like the sexuality part. They didn't know. And um, they're not judgmental at all. But, but, um, because I was just confused and withdrawn, I think my parents treated it like, you know, oh my God, we, we lost a daughter and she's withdrawn. We don't know how to handle her. So, you know, like she's mouthing off to us, something's wrong. And I think it was that reactive approach that they just like, you know, you know like they didn't, uh, the first time at least, they didn't abduct me. They, um, they kind of just dropped me off in Utah and I was put into like strip search, put into isolation. At 14. Um, yeah, like I had never been naked in front of anyone else. And I was strip searched. I was told to squat and like cough to like, you know, in case anything yeah. there is inside me. I was forced to do a pelvic exam with a, a nurse practitioner, which, you know, like at 14, you don't need a pelvic exam. But uh, yeah, you know, like they were checking to make sure I was, I mean, to be vulgar, like a virgin. And, you know, it was, it was very like, at the time I was 14 and I didn't realize how violating that was, but it was really uncomfortable. You're 14. You've never been naked. You, you are told that you have no choice that this person is going to basically inspect the inside of you. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, I, I think I was a little bit defiant when I came in and I said, like, they asked us to, me to take a chair, which taking a chair means you take a chair and you stare at the wall. And uh, they, at one point uh, after like an hour or so, they told me if, to get off the chair. And I said, no, and I was just going to stay there because I was just, I didn't want to deal with them. I was like, my parents had just abandoned me. I was in tears. I didn't want to deal with these people, strangers. And they pretty much were like, okay, you're going to salt, like isolation. And I pretty much was in isolation for like three weeks. Um, I got so stressed. I was, uh, I had my hair falling out. I was just like, um, and my parents, like, I don't know how much they knew or like how they referred to it to my parents, but I I'm sure my parents knew I was in trouble at the time, but like, 
you know, like, I don't think they, I don't know how much, how many details and I don't want to press my parents because I don't want to feel resentment towards them. Um, but like, that was like, that was my first stay, which was like a year and that overlapped with Paris's stay. Um, Paris came in uh, towards the end I was, uh, uh, that I was there. I was there with also with Raina, who we saw in the documentary and uh, Jessica as well. Um, and, you know, Paris was just like a sweet, normal kid, um, you know, and I, to us, it wasn't like a lot of us kids were there. Um, like, so my parents were private pay. Paris's kids were, uh, Paris was private pay. But like Raina in the documentary, she was there from the foster care system. Okay. And uh, Jessica was there from DHS. Like a lot of these kids are sent by the state because they don't want to, like the state themselves will pay the money to like have these kids in prison. They're not criminals, but they're just sent there um, and treated like criminals. With, like le- Criminals have more rights. If, if, I, if I had committed a crime and went to juvenile hall, um, I would have the ability to pick up a phone, call a lawyer, call my friends. Um, get a child, call CPS if I felt I was abused. I had none of those rights there. Uh, criminals actually have more rights than a, a student at Provo Canyon School. Wow. Um, and so that was the first time I went to Provo. I came out. And when I came out, I was really, really, like I had a hard time adjusting because like, I didn't know how to relate to people anymore. I, like as one year of my life had been cut out. So I got really into computers actually. And I got into like hacking and stuff and, and cool stuff like that. And, um, and my parents like noticed I was withdrawn again. It was like a year and a half later. And, um, and I, this time I was abducted in the middle of the night and like Paris. And this time I was taken to another program in Mexico. And this one was really, really, really like really super abusive. It was run again by a a corporation out of Utah. Um, it was actually a corporation that had spun out from PCS. So, it was a it was a, a bunch of Provo Canyon school employees went and created an even more abusive set of programs, and they put them in like four countries. There was one actually in Europe, but it got shut down really quick because uh, uh, because Europe is just doesn't doesn't uh, a lot of the EU won't will not handle that kind of stuff. You spoke there about being taken out of your bed at night, and that was one of the the things in the documentary that was really really shocking as well, because um, I know that Paris she was explaining how her sister remembered it and how her parents were there and she was screaming and crying and looking for help and nobody was helping her. I mean, is this tactic in order to create that fear from the offset? I mean, is everything in these schools generated on fear and guilt? I mean, is that, are you, is fear, guilt and shame? Yeah. Like, are they trying to reform you or is it just about that control of you over you maintaining your fear throughout the whole thing well they call it behavioral modification but it's uh it it, there's a lot of fear and shame like shame as in like i saw people blamed for their own rapes uh and abuse in their past things like that i saw people i saw rape reenactments at like the mexican place um and by the way but the mexican place i was only there six months my parents transferring back to utah at provo and then i spent till i was 18 so that was the tl that, that was how i ended up back at provo but um a lot of these, like I say, fear, shame, and and uh, and um, intimidation, like and guilt. Um, so they they ply on everything is your fault. You. Um, uh, but as far as like the the kidnapping in the middle of the night, that is an in like almost an industry standard. Like if you go to any of these boarding schools, they have like a link for escorts, and these escorts want to ki- get the kids when they are 
unaware uh, when they are the, the, the least uh, prepared for it to fight back. But the reality is it's this is like the this method of just abducting a child in the middle of the night is traumatic in itself. It's PTSD inducing, I would say, because like I never when my parents dropped me off at PCS the first time I was I've had fears of abandonment, things like that afterwards. But I could still sleep in my own bed late, like when I came back, I, I could still like sleep like eight hours and feel good. But after that, like I haven't slept a night since then where like I don't wake up when a pin drops. I don't you know, I don't. Uh, I'm not very aware uh, of like if any movement in the room because it does like kind of drive you to a hypervigilant state and it is something you have nightmares of later on. Um, and unfortunately, it's a it's an industry standard in when, with this uh, with, like the, every single program will refer some escort service will, which run these same methods. It, it's kind of crazy. Like it's generally understood that if somebody gets kidnapped, just kidnapped in general for a short period of time, like they've done research, it can cause PTSD. Yeah. The, so it's weird that parents think that as long as we're paying for it, it's not going to cause PTSD. No, it's you're doing the same thing that any other stranger kidnapper would do. I mean, a lot of these kids that I talk to, they didn't even see their parents when they're being kidnapped. Like parents at least saw them crying in the hallway. Like I didn't see my parents. I didn't even know who these people were. They were just like, come on, come with us. I had no idea where I was going. And then suddenly I'm driving towards Mexico. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine. And like you don't, you don't find out till five, five, six hours later. Oh wait, my parents paid these people to do it. I'm not actually being kidnapped and like sold to like slavery. Like yeah, I, 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 these are actually my parents that requested this to happen. Can I ask Catherine about what the reaction has been since um, you know the documentaries come out? I know that this is a movement that is 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 going on longer than than this documentary but Paris Hilton is obviously she has a massive following so I would imagine I, I think that she is the, the most high profile person in terms of celebrity who's come forward and actually spoken about her experiences and um, but has there been any rebuttals from these institutions I mean is there any people on the regulatory side of things that are like look there's there's method to this what sounds like madness for all intents and purposes but what what has kind of been coming from from their side since you know the, the news has broken about this and since uh, uh, your breaking code silence has kind of come to the forefront in terms of a news story um, honestly uh, there has been a little bit of like so like there's a, uh, a I wouldn't call them a regulatory agency there's kind of like a group of programs and program owners that have this like accreditation called NAPSAP where they're like, not all programs where, where some of us are good. We, we, but it's like self-governance with that organization. So they're, they're pretty like, they don't go and shut down programs. It's basically you pay to be part of the membership and it's owners of programs that basically supervise it. And there's no like actual teeth to it. Um, they're trying to say that like, Hey, look, we have some good programs. Just go with the programs recommended by us. But Provo Canyon school used to be part of their organization right. uh, during the years where they were really bad as well. Um, you know, that as also I've, I've, you know, Provo County School, uh, their CEO commented on the Salt Lake City, uh, Tribu uh, Salt Lake Tribune article this weekend, basically saying, okay, uh, you know, I'm really worried about the bad stigma that this is going to create towards uh, behavioral health. And honestly, um, I, most of us survivors, like, and people that have gone through this, we're not trying to create a, 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 a like, 
it, they're trying to turn it around that they're the victims that it's creating a bad mental health stigma. We don't have a problem with mental health and evidence-based uh, um, treatments. Like a lot of people um, and I, uh, in the survivor community have gone through EMDR, EMDR like go, go to therapy, you know, believe in psychiatry, uh, psychiatric uh, medications when needed. Uh, we believe in rehab. We believe in, you know, mental health, mental health hospitals. We just don't believe in this method because, you know, the evidence and the research that limited as it is shows that it is trauma inducing and that there's little to no oversight. There was a government. Uh, so our government, the United States, did a year long investigation into this industry back in 2008 and they found widespread abuses. They basically said, look, based on this model, it's not the uh, it's not the uh, uh, it, it, it's actually the norm to have abuses in these schools like it's broad across the entire industry because of the lack of oversight, lack of regulation, lack of uh, lack of uh, ability to report. A lot of these kids are abused, but they can't like pick up the phone and call CPS. So it goes under the radar long enough for the statute of limitations. Yeah. Um, and so we know it's a problem. Um, and we don't, we aren't trying to create a mental health stigma, um, but that's their kind of response of trying to hide behind, let's not create a bad stigma. No, there's this industry, the troubled teen industry should have a bad stigma if they're not following um, evidence-based and, and, and uh, they aren't being uh, evidence-based treatment and they're not being regulated more. But things like local and like states, like using like community-based treatments, going to therapy, inpatient mental health hospitals. We're not against that. What is your overall goal with what you're doing? And I know that, you know, that must have been an incredible moment to see such a massive reaction to this documentary that has now been viewed by millions of people all around the world. Um, are you going to the government? Is that the next step? Do you want these schools to be shut down? Or is it about kind of enabling that definition of regulation that could save people because I was looking at some of the stats on your website and I mean there are shocking statistics that are coming out of these schools in terms of not only the the sheer volume of kids that are within them but also the incidences of of accident and, and harm that happens within them. I mean there's certainly some that probably should be shut down um, but um, we're kind of attacking it from a multifaceted approach. We'd love to see more research, like more like like the government government accountability uh, office reports. Like we'd like to see more of those. We'd love to see more from academia to see the long term results and successes. A lot of the research that's been done has been done on, done on a smaller scale um, or by the programs themselves, based on surveys to parents, not to the students uh, or the people that were actually affected by this. So what I would like to see is academia catching up on the research. I'd like to see have more education in place for the parents that are thinking about sending kids to these programs and giving them alternatives like here's wraparound therapy, here's things like that. But a bigger problem that's actually starting to pop up is these kids. Uh, it's less about private pay kids. It's more about insurance, foster care, uh, juvenile, uh, juvenile hall systems and school districts paying for the kids. So, but the, a lot of these states that are sending these kids out of state have laws against the things that they are, uh, they are like Provo Canyon School can't exist inside of California. California has laws about how long we can incarcerate children, certain due process, the ability to call, make phone calls, uh, right? Like a child inside of California, my state, uh, ha has a right to consent to medical procedures at 14 and above. In Utah, it's 18 and above. Um, so why are we spending our taxpayer money to send state kids there? 
uh, we should be. So what I hope to do is regulate this a little bit more where um, the we cut off the funding if the if the state where they're sent or the program where they're sending kids to aren't adhering to the parent states uh, that's paying for it. Because why are we going to pay a, another state to break what our local state's laws are? Um, why are we pay, funding that if you know we we don't even let it allow allow it to be legal there? So since the documentaries come out, we've actually had one, at least one senator reach out. Um, we are going to continue talking to and and let try to get legislation. We're going to start at the state level. I hope to to move it to the federal level at some point. But as you probably have seen in the news, the uh, government here has uh, the federal government here definitely has uh, uh, <laughs> has a. Um, it's a little more complicated and messy right now. So I don't know, I don't know how, how fast that'll move, but at least on the state level, we're getting some good conversations. So education, providing alternatives, um, you know, getting more research available out there for people to see and insurance companies to actually see and base their decisions, uh, payment decisions on, uh, and legislation and regulation. That's ultimately our goals. We, we wanna move the stigma where kids shouldn't feel ashamed for being labeled by some, by somebody else when they're younger and being able to talk about this and making sure that other children in the future are not uh, not treated the same way. It's an incredible thing because, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about there as well is, you know, about that awareness. And I mean, just on a personal note for you kind of growing up after being in these schools, and I'm sure that you saw all of the things that Paris Hilton was doing in the press yourself. Was that very surreal for you to be to be watching this celebrity life and this kind of star coming out of what was now we know as an audience and like I mean hands up I, I thought I knew the person that Paris Hilton was I had no idea of what she had been through and I think that's what's really hitting people with this is that you actually never know what people have been through no matter no matter what their life looks like from the outside and I mean from you having had overlap with this person's life who then went on to the biggest level of celebrity that you can imagine was that very surreal for you Catherine it was surreal more just not because like I didn't think she could do it or anything like that um but uh two reasons one like you know like right off the bat we knew like people who knew her like knew that this the surreal life uh like reality show was just like bs like you know which more power to her it it, it was entertainment things like that and then so therefore I don't hold it against her, but like in Provo Canyon in school, we had a very strict regimen of like chores we had to do every day and like OCD, like, so using things like mops and rug, like you know, vacuuming and like having to scrub things down and fold, like fold stuff like that is, that was just kind of like every day. So hearing her in like simple life, pretending like she didn't know how to do that. It was, it was more comedy. We thought that was funny, um, but it was sitting like, they're probably going, well, we know that we've seen her mop. And so, and even at the very beginning, her voice and everything, I, it was just very, very different. She had created this character, but I suppose you could say that that comes again from the fact that when you've been through a trauma, you're going to do everything in your power to separate yourself from what that reality was, you know? Yeah, if you read actually some really like I, so when I started getting involved in the survivor community, I like I dug into a lot of research on trauma and disassociation and like is common with trauma, like disassociating, like coming, like having kind of like that facade. Uh, obviously, Paris is like a very a different kind of facade, but like over, you know, being workaholics, kind of having your external image to hide from the pain. That's actually quite normal. Like um, the only thing with Paris, like and I, I really feel bad for her is like. So all of us, like when we get out of these places, uh, 
a lot of us tend to be confused and act like act out. We just, we don't know how to handle life anymore. Um, we, we make a lot of mistakes usually in our twenties. Um, I know I did. Um, if I had a camera following me around documenting every mistake I made in my early twenties, oh my, I wouldn't have a career right now. I would, everyone would probably think I was a dumb idiot who partied too much and did whatever else. Um, so I feel bad that like that stigma, like every mistake that's followed her because someone's someone, uh, someone, uh, um, followed her around with a camera. Like she, she wasn't allowed to like live like and deal with her trauma in her twenties without being, having a trauma compounded. Cause if you think about it, like everyone at that school, like we're all like forced to tell on each other and, and shame each other and things like that. It was just like part of like, you were in trouble if you didn't do it. And then she leaves to the outside world and that's what the paparazzi do to her. So it's like almost like the program followed her out, out in some ways. So I like, I really feel bad for, and like a lot of empathy for like the mistakes she made, uh, you know, and the fact that she's still so well adjusted because a lot of the survivors, one thing that came up in the survivor community is if I had unlimited resources or if a lot of us had unlimited resources and money in our twenties to spiral down, a lot of us would have been dead. Um, and she somehow didn't turn into like an addict or like kill herself. And she actually like succeeded. So, you know, that's inspiring actually to a lot of us. I think so. I think inspiring is a, is a really good word to describe how, how everyone came across in that documentary, you know. Um, I suppose before I let you go, I want to ask just about how people can get more involved and can learn a little bit more about uh, the network of survivors that you have at the moment. I know that there's um, hashtag breaking code silence and stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about that and where people can go to learn more? Because I think in terms of people who are viewing this documentary and again, you know, trying to get involved in a part of Paris Hilton's life, which many people were doing for decades now at this point, uh, there's serious things to be learning about when it comes to something which is a very serious matter. Yeah, so there's a website, breakingcodesilence.net, um, that you can go to, but also there's a Breaking Code Silence Facebook page where we're sharing articles. And uh, like, so the breakingcodesilence.net uh, is like all the stats, like resources, other things. The Facebook page, Instagram page, and now TikTok are more of like, you know, bite-sized uh, stuff where we're sharing links and stuff as, as things happen. Um, that's where you can learn more. If you want to like actually go and like see individual people's stories, um, like there's been thousands of people just sharing their stories on social media. So if you just do like breaking code silence hashtag on Facebook, you're just going to see a ton. Um, and it's, it's, an, it's amazing. Cause like, you know, it's something that we, like we've had shame and stigma for, for so many years. And it's nice to see that the people removing that, that, that stigma, um, it's like what Jabrina said in the documentary, it's not our shame, it's their shame, and we're just holding on to it. And it's great to see a lot of people letting go. It's cathartic, for sure. And just finally as well, Paris has re-engaged with the community and with you guys as well. And is she continuing to do that work? I know that it's, a, it's an odd time in the world to be kind of coming out with uh, such a powerful documentary as well, like Bang Smack in the middle of a, of a global pandemic. But um, I follow her on social media and it seems like she's very much committed to this and she's, she's going to be continuing to work with you guys. So is that the case? Yeah, that's the case. Um, we've been talking about what the next steps are and I don't want to like uh, announce anything for her, but it definitely seems like uh, we're starting to iron out some next steps. Um, but I'll leave that to her because I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to say something I'm not allowed to. Uh, but yes, yeah, she's definitely committed to keep on going. It's something she feels passionate about. 
Amazing. Well, Catherine McNamara, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, letting us know a little bit more about this matter. Yeah, thank you so much. There you have it. Thank you so much to Catherine McNamara for joining us. And if you haven't watched the This Is Paris official documentary, it's streaming for free on YouTube now on Paris Hilton's official page. So go and check that out. I mentioned earlier on that it was my birthday. I turned early 30s. Thank you so much for all the birthday messages. I failed to mention that it was also my good friend Dermot Cronin's birthday. He turned 24 on the same day as me. He's a massive fan of the show. He's been listening religiously since 2017. He's asked numerous times can he be on the show not yet but maybe one day Dermot so happy birthday and thank you so much for reaching out as always we know you're Girls With Goals number one fan that's it for now thank you so much for listening and we will chat to you next week